Well, you can open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3 this afternoon. And again, we're just moving along in the book of Ephesians. So we come across topics as they come to us in God's Word. We're not skipping anything or brushing over anything, but addressing all that God would have us in this have for us in this book. Ephesians chapter 2. Ahmad, Ahmad was an orphan raised in the slums of India. Now I say was an orphan because by God's grace he was adopted out of the slums of India by an American family and brought to the United States of America. And he was raised in a loving Christian family, saved out of poverty, saved from starvation and conditions even worse than that. He was raised in America, given a great American education, and by the time he was in his mid-20s, he was given the opportunity to fly back to India, his homeland. He went with a friend, and he landed in India, and they went back to the very slums that Ahmad had been raised in. And when Ahmad saw those slums, he began to weep. And the friend that was with Ahmad said, Ahmad, why are you weeping? And Ahmad, with tears in his eyes, said, I forgot how bad it really was. Christians, some of us forget how bad it really was without Christ. Some of us forget how bad our condition was. How bad the world we lived in was. How bad our thoughts were. How bad our actions were. We forget what God has saved us from. And sometimes that forgetfulness causes us to be unthankful, ungrateful, even apathetic to the great mission of God to reach more and to save more out of the sinful slums. We need to be reminded, reminded over and over again from the pages of Scripture by each other just how bad it was. So that we would never forget what God saved us out of and that we would never go back to the condition that we once lived in. You know, we've been talking about in the book of Ephesians the incredible power of God that saved us. It's the same power that raised Christ from the dead. The same power power that sat him at the right hand of the Father with all power and authority over all things. That power was effective in your life. And in order to see the greatness of that power, you need to stand with us as we look at God's word and just see how deep the pit was. How deep the pit was that God pulled us out of. How how desperate a state we once lived in. And you'll just be in amazement at the grace and power of God to pull us out of that desperate state. And so this afternoon we come to Ephesians chapter 2. This is kind of the ground level, I would say actually below ground level of our salvation. And Paul gives us a great picture of our previous condition, our previous cosmos or the world that we lived in, the previous conduct of an unbeliever, 
and the previous conclusion. It's not a very happy text, but a good sober reminder for us this afternoon. So why don't you look at the text with me, Ephesians chapter 2, let's look at verse 1 and just go section by section through this text to be reminded of what or who we once were. Look at verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Let's stop there. This is the old condition, the old condition. We were pronounced dead in our trespasses and sins. You know, I think a lot of people in the church even can be confused about death. Some of them get their definition of death from Miracle Max in The Princess Bride. Do you remember him? Miracle Max says, there's well, there's a couple different kinds of death. There's mostly dead, and then there's all the way dead, right? And if they're mostly dead, well, you still have a chance to save them. But if they're all dead, what do you do? You look through their pockets for loose change because it's over, right? Well, what does the Bible say about death? What, is, what does it mean to be dead in the trespasses and sins? You know, my friend... Uh, just lost his father this past week to multiple myeloma. It's a tragic death. He was pretty young still. And we talked on the phone for a while, and my friend witnessed his father pass right in front of his eyes. He, he sat literally at his deathbed. And he was describing the scene to me. And he said the moment of his passing was surreal. His family started to say strange things when his father passed. They said strange things like, he's gone. Or like, that was the last time that I saw my father. It's a tragic scene. But think about the strangeness of those statements. Here, their father's body was lying right in front of them. And they're saying he's gone. They could see their father, well, at least the body, right in front of their eyes, but they said, that was the last time that I saw my father. Strange statements, but they actually tell us a lot about what death really is. What do those statements tell us about death? Death is a great departure. Death is a separation. The, death is the absence of life. Even though the physical body is there, the spirit is gone. And we all know that. We all recognize that when someone passes away. This is the old condition. This is who we once were without Christ. Physically alive, but spiritually dead. Separated from God, absent of eternal life. To be dead is to be unable. To be dead is to be unable, Un unable to move, unable to hear, unable to breathe, unable to think, unable to respond, unable to do anything. I mean, think about it. If you were to talk or try to have a conversation with a dead person, 
you know what their response would be. Nothing. They're gone. They are unable to respond. That's what it means to be dead. Now think about the implications of that spiritually then. If we are spiritually dead, dead in our trespasses and sins, let me ask these questions. Can the spiritually dead make themselves alive? Can a dead man raise himself from the dead? No. Does the spiritually dead have any ability in themselves? No. Because they are, by definition, unable. They are dead. Not mostly dead, but completely and totally dead to God. This is a desperate condition, isn't it? And this is what we are described as or what we were without Christ. This may who be who you are today if you don't have Christ. No ability. No ability to wake ourselves up. No ability to raise ourselves from the dead. No ability to save ourselves. We lay there helpless and hopeless without Jesus Christ. Spiritual zombies, if you will. The walking dead. Physically alive and moving, but spiritually dead and unable. And what is the cause of death? What is the cause of death? Well, look back at the text. Ephesians 2, 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. In the original Greek manuscripts, it's actually, you were dead in the trespasses, and there's a personal pronoun there, your sins. Paul points the finger and says, in your old condition, you were killing yourself. Spiritual suicide. A powerful and physical illustration of this is with those who struggle with substance abuse or addiction. Maybe that's uh, something that you deal with or, or maybe that's something you dealt with in your past or you know somebody very close to you who is living in that struggle. You can literally see on these people's faces in their physical uh, presence that there are consequences to their sin. You can see it, can't you? You can see them actually literally, quite literally, killing themselves with this drug or with this addiction. It's very apparent with people who deal with hard uh, substance abuse. They're literally, before your eyes, you could see them physically deteriorate. They're killing themselves, wilting away under the power of a drug or some kind of substance. You know, what you have to realize is that that, what you see there, that illustration, that is the condition of the soul without Jesus. Man, some people, they put on makeup, they save face, they look good, they come to church, they've got the right outfit on, they look clean press, clean cut, but spiritually they are dead and dying. Imagine if we could see the condition of their souls exposed. We would see a lot more people look like substance abusers 
we would see a lot of people looking like zombies, wilting away under their sin. That's what Paul describes as happening to the unbeliever. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. They're killing themselves. That's a sobering condition outside of Christ. Amen. Romans 6.23. It's nobody's fault except our own. The wages of sin is death. Outside of Christ, you're dead. Not because of someone else or something else, but because of your own trespasses and sins. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news to people in this condition. Amen? So that's the old condition. Point number two, the old cosmos. Or I was looking for a C word. word. It's the old world that these people live in. Not only is the condition of those outside of Christ sobering, but the world or the cosmos in which they live is tyrannical. Look in the text here. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So those outside of Christ dead in their trespasses and sins, they walk according to or in step with a different world. A world in which Satan is the ruler. You see that in the text, the spirit that is now in the work, at work in the sons of disobedience, the prince of the power of the air. That's a reference to Satan, the devil, The devil is the mini ruler in this old cosmos, this old world that sinners walk in. It's the cosmos of death. And he's given limited sovereignty over the sons of disobedience. Now, we know that God is sovereign over all. He is sovereign over all the world. Psalm 47, 7 says, God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over all the nations. He sits on his holy throne. Even Satan is under the ruling hand of God. You'll remember this illustrated in the story of Job. In order for Satan to sift Job like wheat, he had to do what? He had to ask God for permission. God is ultimate sovereign, but there is this dreadful sense in which God for a time has given sinners over to their sin and he gives them over to the rule of God. Of Satan, a ruler that is according to their condition, the original sinner, Satan, the fallen angel of God. And if you're ever tempted to think, oh, well, it's not that bad. Come on, you see the majority of your friends, neighbors, co-workers living in this world, it seems like they're having fun, doesn't it? Satan doesn't seem like that awful of a ruler, Let me just remind you of what Satan, the prince of the power of the air, seeks to do. 1 Peter 5.8 The adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. John 8.44 He's a murderer from the beginning. He lies. 
He is a liar and the father of lies. 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. In Acts 13.10, Satan will not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. Satan is a cruel master. He's a deceptive master. He's an abusive master. He's a tyrant, the ruler of the world of the walking dead. He does not want what's best for your life, even though he promises it. He does not want you to be happy, even though he says it. He does not want to give you life. He wants to keep you dead in the cosmos of the sons of disobedience. He's doing everything he can to keep you in this cosmos. He'll lie to you. He'll deceive you. He'll make the straight paths crooked. Trying to blind you, keep you walking in darkness, blind in sin and separate from God's love. This is the old cosmos in which the sinner or the sons of disobedience live. This is their world. This is their ruler. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news to people who live in this cosmos. Point number three, notice their condition, the old condition, the old cosmos, and notice thirdly, the old conduct. What is the conduct of these people living in this world under this condition? Look at verse three. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. Among whom, among whom? The sons of disobedience, right? In the previous verse. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Let's stop there. That This is the old conduct. The people who live in this world, this is what they do. Notice the word all, among whom we all once lived. Is that everybody? That's everybody. All, that's everybody. All of us here, we all at one time time lived in this condition, in this world. We engaged in this kind of conduct. And what's the conduct here? Well, those living in the passions In the passions, this this word for passions is lust or cravings of our flesh. Carrying out the desires, thelema, which is wish or will of the body and the mind. Let's parse these out a little bit. The passions, the passions, the lusts and the cravings of the flesh. This kind of conduct seems pretty obvious. This includes sins of sexual immorality. Fornication, pornography, sexual infidelity, the lusts of the flesh. This could include substance abuse, gluttony, drunkenness. These are the obvious manifestations of fleshly passions, the things that the world pursues. This is the conduct of those outside of Christ. But Paul doesn't stop there. He includes the broader category of desires. Supplies to the thought life. These are the things that people want. 
the will of or the desires of the body and the mind. These are a little bit less obvious, a little bit less fleshly, if you will. But it, it's a desire of the mind. It could be manifested in a sense of self-righteousness. I'm better than you. And people sometimes think that way or treat other people that way because they find pleasure in thinking yourself better than others. This could be a relentless pursuit of knowledge or information. Someone who's given over to the idol of academia. That doesn't seem bad to the world. That doesn't seem like a fleshly pursuit. But why are they pursuing that? Well, they're pursuing those things in order to appear smart and academic. It's ultimately a selfish desire, isn't it? It's a desire of their will. It could be self-loathing. This is the person that says, woe is me. And sometimes these kinds of persons, they, they do that to draw attention to themselves because it's a desire of their body and their mind that others would think, well, sympathetically towards them and treat them differently. All sin finds its root in self-indulgence and self Indulgence is the conduct of the sinner. Self-indulgence, ultimately. What you want for your body, for your flesh, for your mind. The ultimate crux, the central sin for all sinners, this is who we once were, this is how we used to live, is self-indulgence. Life is about me. And so, the sinner lives in this condition, in this cosmos, where all they do is self-indulge. Whatever makes them happy, whatever pleases you. Doesn't that sound familiar or, or similar to the message of the world? Whatever makes you happy. That is the world's message. It reminds me of the time of the judges. You know what God says about the time of the judges? When the judges had to rule and they're battling back and forth, the Philistines and the Israelites are losing the ark and getting the ark back and then losing it again. God says, in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I mean, I could almost swap Israel and America. (laughs) Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The delusion that people live in is that these pleasures are the way to happiness. Oh, and are they sadly mistaken. You know, this passage, (laughs) funny enough, this passage reminds me of Pleasure Island from the Pinocchio story. You remember it? Kind of a cute illustration. But you have the coachman. He's a satanic figure of the illustration. What does he do? He lures children in to Pleasure Island, and he offers them everything their little fleshly hearts desire. Thrills, tobacco, freedom, or so they think. Of course, they soon realize these pleasures are not fulfilling. More than that, they realize they're not free at all. The coachman rules them. 
In fact, they are slaves to the cruel coachman whose desire is not to make them happy, even though he promised it. His desire is to turn them into donkeys and sell them into further slavery and bondage to the circus. That's how the story goes. But what a great illustration of this passage. I mean, think about it. Sinners without Jesus are living under this delusion. They think they're alive, yet they're dead. They think they're free, yet they are enslaved. They think they've found happiness, yet they are unsatisfied. They think their destiny is bliss, yet their destiny is, well, point number four, the old conclusion. The destiny for the sinner is wrath. Look back at the passage. The end of verse three. They were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This is the old conclusion for the sinner. Without Christ, like little boys ultimately destined to donkey slavery in the circus, like lambs ultimately led to the slaughter, the conclusion or the end of the path for the sinner is wrath. Notice something interesting. It says we were by nature, by human, by nature, children of wrath. We were DOA. Some of you in the medical or emergency response industry knows what DOA means. Dead on arrival. By nature, we were children of wrath. Sin is laced into the human condition. We were born with a sin nature. Romans 5.12 tells us that. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. The sin infection, well, it's worse than a pandemic. It's spread to everybody. Everybody has it. This virus, this infection, it's called sin. And Adam passed it down to us. The first man passed it down to us through Adam's seed. We all were made sinners, but it's not just his fault. Look at death spread to all men because all sinned. We're all responsible. We're all dead in our trespasses and sins. And so because we are sinners, the just penalty for sin is what? Death, and even beyond that, wrath. This is something churches don't like to talk about because, well, it's not pretty. But notice John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And that's where a lot of preachers stop. But you can't stop there. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. That's where some preachers then choose to stop. Because the next phrase is frightening. But the wrath of God remains on him. God's wrath remains on the dead sinner living in this old world. See, we got to be careful with our language because without Christ, you're not totally separate from God. Without Christ, you're not totally separate from him. Yes, indeed, you are totally separate from a saving relationship with God, 
But as an unsaved sinner, you have a strong and binding relationship with the wrath of God. You are called a, a child of wrath. What a terrifying thought. What a terrifying thought. To be a sinner in the hand of an angry God, to stand opposed to him on the day of judgment without Christ, is frightening. It is a horrific destiny. You need to see these passages in Scripture, Psalm 711. This is a frightening verse, but it doesn't mean it's not true. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Wow. Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. Rather fear him, God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Romans 2, 5. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. But the scriptures warn us that the wrath of God is being stored up like a damned reservoir. One day God's hand will be removed from the floodgates and his wrath will flow like mighty waters. Not the strongest or ablest men can withstand the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. God says twice in the scripture, vengeance is mine, I will repay. This is, this is a horrifying, horrific destiny. Jonathan Edwards illustrates it this way in his infamous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He said, the bow of God's wrath is bent. And the arrow made ready on the string. And justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news to people headed for this conclusion. Just another reminder that this morbid condition, this cruel cosmos, this futile conduct, this horrific conclusion is not undeserved. We are not victims there's this strange mentality going around, especially amongst young people, this victim mentality that nothing is our fault. It's somebody else's fault. I blame my parents. I blame the generation before me. I blame them, her, him. You were dead in the trespasses and your sins. Your sin is your fault. We are not victims, we are sinners trespassers, criminals, rebels. This is the bed we made without Christ, and we need to lie in it. These are the consequences of sin. 
The curtain has been lifted by the Apostle Paul. Here is the sinner. Here is the world in which they live. Here is the lives that they live in. They are dead. They are enslaved. They are unhappy. They are sons of disobedience, the children of wrath. Man. We need hope. We need some kind of turn. We need some other direction. We need some better news than this. And the key, Christian, hear me when I say this, the key to understanding this passage is the tense of the verb. Let's go back and reread it. Verse 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. We all once lived in the, por- in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the mind or the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Isn't the tense of that b- verb hopeful? Isn't that good news? This is who you were without Christ. But in Christ, with Christ, you have no relation to this old way of living. This is old history for you. This is who you were without Christ. And praise God for that. We have good news, a stark contrast, a glorious contrast, and it's awaiting us in verse 4. And I I know your heart wants to get there, to that but God statement right there, being rich in mercy, but we're going to get there next week. We have to hold on. We just simply need to remember this is who we were without Christ. And that affords us some application here. This is a sobering reminder. But number one, never forget who you were. Never forget who you were without Christ. Paul, the great apostle, he reminds himself regularly of who he was without Christ. He calls himself the chief of sinners, or he was the chief of sinners. He calls himself, 1 Corinthians 15, he was unworthy to be an apostle because of how he persecuted the church. He constantly reminded himself of who he was And he did that for a couple of reasons. Number one, it will keep you humble. It will keep you humble. You will not think yourself better than others if you remember how bad you were. Some of us, man, in the church environment, you get this holier-than-thou kind of uh, attitude. And that's just not Christian. That's not reflective of what we've been saved from. There is no holier-than-thou attitude for the Christian. There's always the humble, oh Lord, I can't, I am overwhelmed that you would save such a wretch like me. How could I compare myself to this other person when I know how sinful I was, how sinful I still am? Being reminded of our sin, it just keeps us humble. It keeps us not thinking of ourselves greater than we ought to be, and ultimately it humbles us before a perfect and a holy God. It's important to never forget who you were. And point number two, it will keep the gospel beautiful in your mind. Listen, when you see how deep the pit was that you were saved out of, 
you are not going to take advantage of the grace of God. You will not be just apathetic toward the gospel. You will be overwhelmed, just overjoyed, embracing the gospel daily because you are so thankful to God that he saved you from being such a wretch. Never forget who you were. It will keep you humble. It will keep the gospel beautiful in your mind. And point number three, it will keep you missional. It will keep you missional to remember who you were. You should have noticed that throughout the sermon, I repeated Romans 10, 15. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news of the gospel. I couldn't help but think as I read through these three verses, the people in my life who are still living in this condition, who are still living in this world, who are still living in these kind of actions and conduct and who are headed for that horrible destination. I think of loved ones, family members that I'm going to see at Thanksgiving, that I'm going to see at Christmas, neighbors that I walk by every day that are living in this world. How can I not preach the gospel? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news to people living in this condition. I was no different than them. But by God's grace, someone brought me the gospel and he opened my heart to believe. Man, I need to be more missional. I need to have these realities set before my mind more often so that I think, oh my goodness, my uncle does not know Christ and this is how he's living and this is where he's going. And it would motivate me to share the good news of the gospel with him. I, I think of C.H. Spurgeon, you've probably heard this quote, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our, do- over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. How can you apply that to your life? Never forget who you were. I think it was C.H. Dodd, or Stud, uh, C.T. Stud, missionary, who said, you know, somebody asked him, where, where would be the best place to do ministry? And he said, well, I, I want to run a despot inches to the cliff of hell so I can be the last person to share the gospel with them before they would perish. Never forget who you were. Num- point number two, never go back. Never go back. This is, note, who you were, Christian. Were. Don't be like the dogs who return to their vomit. Don't be like a foolish, freed slave who returns to bondage under a cruel master. The way of your old life is broken. It's futile. It's fleeting. It's unfulfilling. And you know it. Do not return to those former pleasures. Do not return to that old world. Listen, pornography is an old world pleasure. Cursing is an old world language. Anger and bitterness are old world attitudes. Fear and anxiety are old world troubles. Don't go back. May these sobering realities be a reminder to you of that is not how you want to live. Press forward in Christ. Flee from the old world Never go back. You live in a new world now. 
You are a new creation in Christ. You have a new master. There are new pleasures, a new language, new attitudes, and a new hope for you without trouble. Live in Christ. Flee from those old sinful passions, those pleasures, those desires, and pursue the Holy One, Jesus Christ. Never go back. Never go back. Never fall back in. Flee from this old way of life. Now, there may be some of you in this room where the reality is that these are not past tense realities. They are present tense. That is that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You are now walking, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. You live in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of your body and mind. You are, by nature, children of wrath. Consider the warning from this text. The curtain has been lifted. This is who you are without Christ. Consider your condition, dead. Consider your cosmos, Consider your conduct. Consider your conclusion. And turn immediately to Jesus Christ for salvation today. I pray that you don't arrive to heaven in this condition without Jesus Christ. Without him. Like Jonathan Edwards exhorts at the end of his sermon, I want to exhort the same for you today. Therefore, Let everyone that is out of Christ now awake, fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let everyone fly out of Sodom, haste and escape for your lives. Look not behind you, escape to the mountain, lest you be consumed. Flee to Christ today. There is a beautiful Savior. There is a glorious, perfect, wonderful Savior Jesus Christ, the God-man who came to this earth, lived the perfect life you couldn't live, died on the cross in your place, took your punishment, took the wrath. He became a child of God's wrath so that you wouldn't have to suffer under it. And he rose again from the dead by the power of God and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. He is Lord of lords. He is the only way and Savior. Trust in him today. Flee this condition. Flee from this cosmos. Flee from this conduct. Run away from this conclusion and find rest in Jesus Christ. And you could even do that today. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for saving me. What powerful, wonderful grace that you would see a wretched sinner like me in such a such a morbid condition, dead in my trespasses and sins, living according to the lusts of my flesh, the desires of my heart, headed and not just headed, but sprinting towards wrath, running away from you, Lord. And yet in your grace and your love, you reached out and saved me. 
What a wonderful salvation I'm so thankful for. Lord, when I think about who I was, I am overwhelmed with gratitude and thanksgiving, but I'm also compelled, Lord, to share the good news of the gospel with others, to help and help others be saved from this wrath. I pray, Lord, that you would make us missional. Help us to be missional, especially towards this holiday season, to help family members see and escape from this horrible condition. Lord, we trust you. We look to you. We depend on you completely because we are unable in and of ourselves. Thank you for this time. It's a wonderful look at your grace and your word. In Jesus' name, amen.